Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am uh, one of your two co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and uh, today I'm just recording this quick intro. Uh, this is the middle of summer. This episode is coming out the last day of July, and so we're having just a short um, sort of summer shorts episode. Uh, Martha and I have recorded uh, a couple little things, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight minutes long um, each to talk about various media that we're consuming over the summer or general things we want to talk about. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this special summer shorts episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to this short segment, uh, which is part of our compilation episode for this week. Um, I would like to talk to you about a book that I finished recently called Harvest Home by Thomas Trion, which was published in 1973. It was later made into a mini-series on, I believe, NBC, uh, starring Betty Davis and Dan Aykroyd. Not Betty Davis. Uh, that would be... Oh, yep, sorry. The internet does confirm, starring Betty Davis and Dan Aykroyd. Uh, this is what I get when I look at my notes, but don't have them handy as a uh, reference while I'm actually talking to you. A Harvest Home is a gothic horror novel, um, the title of which I got recommended to me as part of a horror newsletter uh, that I receive every once in a while. Uh, the theme of that particular newsletter was folk horror uh, in response to how popular uh, Midsummer has been. Now, I have not yet had a chance to see Midsummer, but I did enjoy Harvest Home a lot, and I enjoy the genre of folk horror uh a whole lot in general. So Harvest Home is interesting because it is never outright, it's never like outright horror. Like there is a kind of pervasive dread uh, that sort of creeps along with the book, but for the most part, and uh, every once in a while, like something creepy will happen uh, and the end pops off in a big way. But in general, there's nothing overtly terrifying about it. Um, the story is about a family that moves from uh, New York out to a little, um, a little tiny farm town in, I think it's Connecticut. Location is a little bit vague. For a while, I thought we were in the English countryside. Um, and it, it does feel very rural and very... Um, sort of it i mean the fact that this city or this town is embroiled in their traditions is a big plot point so i think it is meant to feel very um very or, or, uh, rural very agricultural um but the the husband is narrating uh the story of his family his wife and his daughter moving into this a little tiny farm town um, where at first everything seems perfect. Like the town is um, wholly agricultural based. They have a whole uh, year's worth of celebrations and markers based on the corn growth cycle. Um, the book begins at the beginning of the summer um, and we get to see all of the different uh, harvest kind of landmarks that happen and the ways that the town celebrates it. 
and all of the very um, almost pagan rituals that the town has preserved uh, that they celebrate in order to maintain um, a you know a good crop and the the health of the city town. It's a town. There's nothing city about this town. Um, and the the husband, the narrator, um, as he investigates and learns more about what the town does and how they they have always kind of run, um, you know, you start to get the feeling that there there's something kind of not wrong, but there's something pretty dark hanging out below the surface. And that's one of the things that I love the most about folk horror is that it's people that are generally the cause of the horror or the, um, not evil, but like the dark stuff that's happening. And frequently in ho- in folk horror, it's ritual based. Um, a lot of folk horror, another, another one that pops to mind is the witch, although that one is very supernatural. Um, but a lot of folk horror, it, it kind of hinges on rituals and ceremonies, um, frequently human sacrifice or sacrifice of other stuff. Um, and a lot of it is based in this very agricultural tradition, which listeners of the podcast will know um, also has a very heavy matriarchal component, which would make it, you know, thoroughly my jam. Uh, Harvest Home is no different. Uh, the further into the book you read, and I'm not going to spoil it because I, I do think that fans of the genre should uh, read and enjoy this one. Um, but the more you get to know the women of this town, uh, the more you get to see that they are, uh, how they are running the show and, you know, the lengths to which everyone has gone in order to uh, keep the town healthy and going in a way that is acceptable to uh, the residents who live there. So if you're a, a fan of gothic horror, gothic literature, uh, the folk horror genre, um, or even just not or even just like rural mysteries. Um, I highly recommend checking out Harvest Home by Thomas Trion. The other horror novel that I read recently that is kind of folk horror adjacent, but this one is like folk horror uh, entwined with a psychological horror component is The Red Tree by Caitlin Kiernan. Uh, the Red Tree is about an author who is staying in a remote cabin uh, in order to complete her next book. Um, It is set up like a found manuscript. So it has a prologue and an epilogue from the quote-unquote publisher and editor of the book, you know, talking about how they found this manuscript after the author Sarah uh, was found having committed suicide in this house that she rented. Um, and then you get to read the manuscript that they found that she uh, had been working on while she was staying in the house. And it's very much a kind of descent into madness sort of story, although Sarah is pretty uh, damaged and broken at the start of the book. Um but she is staying in this house and finds another manuscript that the previous occupant had been working on, uh, detailing the history of this tree on the property, a red oak tree, uh, and all of the creepy and horrific stuff that had been happening throughout history 
around this tree. Um, and as Sarah investigates, as she reads the manuscript and starts investigating the tree, uh, and her, it starts to kind of warp her whole uh, perception of reality. And you really get to see her, uh, her mental decline as she kind of fights with what she thinks is real and what the, how the tree could be affecting her. Um, it's a very internal book. Uh, Sarah is a hard character to read. Uh, she's not very likable. Um, and, you know, having that prologue means you know how the book is going to end. So it has this very kind of heavy um, sense of foreboding throughout the story. Um, but it is a really interesting and, of course, super creepy um, and occasionally like hair raised on my arms uh, kind of terrifying uh, journey to get to the end. Um, the folk horror element in the red tree comes more in the stories around the red oak, um, like stories about human sacrifice, because of course, um, you know, creepy animal incidents, um, something that could, some kind of monster that potentially lives out in the forest. So it still has some of those elements without being, um, without having that same kind of basis in agricultural society. Um, but I'm all about cryptids and monsters in the forest. Uh, and yeah, just the, the psychological horror element combined with those kind of more folkish elements <clears throat> uh, made, the made the Red Tree a really interesting and unique read. So if you're looking for something horror-adjacent or just, you know, straight-up horror to read this summer, um, I think you could check out either Harvest Home or The Red Tree. They're both pretty accessible, whether or not you're, like, super into horror or just kind of testing the waters on that. Um, but, yeah, check them out. The first thing I'm going to be talking about today is not any actual consumable media, but is instead the uh, an event that I participated in over the past weekend, the River West 24. I've talked about this on previous episodes of the podcast, especially if you go back last year, uh, and probably the previous year too for that matter. Um, I've been doing this uh, race for seven years, I think I've written in it seven times. Um, so I just want to give some information about it because I think it's it's not only uh, a cool race, but it's a great community bonding experience. And even though it's not a piece of consumable media per se, I think that it is important to also consider um, events and especially uh, like yearly events or community events to be part of our purview, to be a, a kind of thing that we can analyze and discuss and consider how it can like help us grow, how we can incorporate it into, um, you know, any sort of academic discussion or setting. So the River West 24 is a 24-hour neighborhood event focused on a relay bike race throughout uh, the, the River West neighborhood of Milwaukee, uh, which is where I live. Um, it started 12 years ago. This past weekend was the 12th year of it. Um, and it's entirely volunteer run, which is one of the most important things about it. Um, it 
could not happen without volunteers and being a volunteer is, I would argue, just as important as being a rider during the race. So what is it? Uh, it's a, uh, like I said, it's a 24-hour relay bike race going throughout the neighborhood. There are four checkpoints that riders must go to in order. Uh, they carry a little manifest card and it gets stamped at each of those checkpoints. After they have completed each of the four checkpoints, just going there, getting it stamped, that's one lap. Each lap is about 4.6 miles if you go on the suggested route, but there's no actual route. They're not shutting down the roads or anything. In addition to these laps, there are also bonus checkpoints. The bonus checkpoints are changing throughout the race. Uh, riders get a sheet at the beginning of the race telling them where to go and when, but not what the checkpoint is going to entail. Some of the bonus checkpoints are pretty straightforward. Um, Adventure Rock is a rock climbing gym, and surprise, you have to climb a rock wall. Uh, basically, you hand your manifest card to the volunteers at that checkpoint. You do whatever you're supposed to do. You get your manifest card back, and you get some bonus laps for having completed the task. So, why? Why are there these bonus checkpoints? What exactly is going on here? Uh, the rock climbing one is sort of an outlier. That's an example of sort of just a fun event that is part of the 24. Uh, part of, it, of the 24 is the fact that it is a massive neighborhood block party, and so, of course, we're always going to be having a lot of fun. However, another part of the 24, and a big part, is the community building uh, event. Um, so, for example, some of the bonus checkpoints included uh, donating an object to the food pantry. You picked a random uh, item out of a... Um, uh, like a raffle uh, wheel, um, so I uh, randomly pulled spices. So I had to go buy some spices and donate it to the food pantry. Similarly, a local school was having a, a drive where we uh, sort of investigated our privileges, learned how that connected to uh, students in Milwaukee Public Schools, and then at the end had to donate something to the school. Uh, pencils, markers, Kleenex, that sort of thing. Whatever school supplies would be needed. School starting in, uh, you know, increasingly a short amount of time here. So it was sort of a, a, a nice two-part where we both got a better understanding of what so many Milwaukee Public students are going through and are facing with various insecurities, um, and then also doing something tangential to support a local school in the community. Um, another way that it, uh, like another bonus checkpoint that really helps build community is one of the most entertaining, and that's the Kids 24. Uh, this is a 24-minute bike ride for kids uh, at the parking lot of, or the uh, the playground of one of the schools in the neighborhood. Uh, volunteers set up bonus checkpoints for the kids, like um, you know, getting a fake tattoo pieing an adult in the face, that sort of thing. Um, two different groups, one for younger kids, one for older kids, but it's a really good way to get a lot of people out supporting the, the kids, supporting the community. Um, this year, there were over 900 volunteers making the whole thing work, and there were 556 teams during the 24. Uh, that's approximately 1,500 riders, not riding all at once, teams, are, it's a relay system. Um, but it was far, far more riders than last year. Last year, there were only 445 teams, so uh, almost more than uh, 100 additional teams this year. And it felt it, both in the sense of the community being vibrant and full of activity the entire 24 hours, but also in the sense of the roads just being that much more crowded. Uh, because they don't shut down the roads, that can lead to some problems. Uh, luckily, I'm not aware of anyone being hurt this year. I don't think anyone has been seriously hurt during the, the 12 years so far, uh, and knock wood on that. But it's something that you're always sort of uh, aware of and cognizant of. Um, and especially when there are so many more cyclists on the road, people go, you know, most people are going a little bit slower. Most people are, are doing a good job at 
minding the rules of the road and being respectful. Um, in fact, the motto of the race that they've uh, that they put on everyone's wristbands and they put signs throughout the neighborhood was "Don't be a jerk," which generally is a pretty good uh, motto for the race. Um, other notable things, like I said, it's a enormous community-wide block party. So various blocks are or, or neighborhood party. Various blocks are doing different things. Friday night, uh, there, a bar in the neighborhood ha closes down the road in front of it, puts on a big concert um, right next to the race route. So cyclists are going by. They don't have to worry about cars on that road. Plus, people in the neighborhood can go check out some live music, check out some food. Um, there's always a uh, one of the streets on the route is uh, called Twizzler Alley by cyclists because all the people on that, that street uh, are out there. Uh, many of them are out very late. I got a Twizzler at 5 a.m. from some of these people, uh, but they're out there. We're talking families with like easy up tents, and they're just standing by the side of the road holding out Twizzlers for cyclists to grab or attempt to grab as they go by. Uh, I joke that about half of my calorie intake during the 24 hours is via Twizzler. Um, there's also the local coffee shop giving out free espresso all 24 hours. Um, uh, you know, various people are, are sort of staples. One person at one of the checkpoints is awake the entire 24 hours, punching manifests, uh, giving people really good encouragement, advice, uh, sometimes shots of whiskey, um, and just really bringing uh, that, like, community enjoyment and party atmosphere to the ride. Um, Additionally, uh, my team is always uh, has been in years past across the street from another set of teams, uh, and we sort of go in on what is called the people's pool, which is just a little waiting pool that uh, they make in the um, parking lot, uh, the parking lane of the street, uh, out of tarps and insulation blocks, just fill it up with water. Um, always nice when like we're able to put our feet in it, but then also when random people walking down the sidewalk are like, "Oh, can we go jump in your pool? Can we put our feet in your pool?" Um, that's the sort of environment that is uh, being pushed during the, the River West 24. I always uh, joke, but it's not entirely untrue, that the safest I ever feel in my neighborhood is at 3 in the morning during the 24 because uh, everyone is out having a good time um, watching each other's backs um, and, and racing. Um, final things I'll say is that uh, every year there's also a tattoo. The tattoo is worth five bonus laps if you get it. Um, and I have gotten, uh, this year is my fifth really good design this year. Check out my Twitter for, uh, pictures of it. Uh, I know Martha is always really excited, uh, each year to see what the tattoo design is once I have gotten it. Um, like I said, the entire, like, this, it is a bike race, but the ethos of the race is to build a community and to, uh, to really create this neighborhood feel that my neighborhood is known for. So, to reinforce that idea, the winners get some champagne, and they get an ice sculpture. First, second, and third place get ice sculptures in the uh, symbol of the number one, two, and three, because victory is great, but it's also fleeting. Uh, so I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm coming down now from my excitement and energy for this year's 24, and I'm already looking forward to next year's 24, best weekend of the year. Um, I'll just wrap this up by saying that the idea of it has spread to other cities. I know that uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul has a... Uh, River West 24 style race. I don't remember the name of it, but it's named after the neighborhood that it takes place in. Um, other communities have had 12-hour races using the similar sort of community building idea or even just four-hour races. Um, so if you think this sounds really interesting, go to the River West 24 website, uh, just Google searching River West 24, get in touch with the organizers there. They've helped other cities and other communities develop their own 
um, similar community events slash bike race situations. Um, I think that it's, uh, it, you know, I've, I've said the word community 500 times now over the course of this little segment, but I think that that's, that's the key word of this. Um, community building, community engagement, uh, you can do a lot with it with those bonus checkpoints. Um, and that's sort of, I think, the, the future that we're all looking forward to. It's, it's a feeling that you really can't get any other time of the year. Um, and and it's, it's incredibly beneficial. This is an ode to creature features. I have not yet seen Crawl, which is a tragedy, let me tell you. Um, but I did watch 47 Meters Down on Netflix the other night, which was highly enjoyable uh, for anybody who is not familiar. 47 Meters Down is a movie that stars Mandy Moore and some other people, mostly Mandy Moore, which this is in the midst of her This Is Us career, so I don't know how much they had to pay her to be in this uh, summer vacation shark movie, but here we are. So she and her sister are vacationing in Mexico, and her sister, uh, they go out one night and meet up with this group of guys who are like, hey, we go shark cage diving like every weekend. You guys should come, because that's a totally safe idea. Uh, but so... Um, Kate is Mandy Moore's sister. Mandy Moore's name in the movie is Lisa. Uh, so Lisa and Kate get talked into going out on a boat to go hang out inside of a shark cage uh, in the middle of the ocean to watch great white sharks. There is no amount of money in the universe that you could pay me to do this, uh, but I will happily watch two idiots on my TV screen do it. Uh, so anyway, the the two guys go out first. Um, they go down. Well, first they chum the waters, which uh, uh, is the first sign that you can tell that this is, you know, going to go super well. Um, but so the two guys go down. They check out the sharks. They come back up. Uh, and Lisa and Kate put their scuba gear on, get in the cage, go down, get to watch some sharks for a while. Uh, and then the winch on the cage slips sending them plunging down to the bottom of the ocean below the sh uh, below the boat that they were on, which is, if you've been paying attention, 47 meters below the surface. Um, the rest of the movie is about them trying to figure out how to get back up to the surface in a way that is safe, because they cannot just swim straight to the surface because of... Um, nitrogen bubbling up into their bloodstream, which is a real thing that can happen uh, when you are scuba diving. The longer you are underwater and breathing in the tank air, the higher, ch the <clears throat> more careful you have to be coming up to the surface. Basically, you have to do a decompression stop about halfway between where you are diving and the surface of the water. Uh, and you have to hang out there. In the movie, it's five minutes. I actually think it's longer, but, you know, we'll, we'll stick with five minutes. That's fine. Um, but so they, they get out of the cage pretty easy. Like getting out of the cage is not actually the main conflict. It's how they get from the bottom of the ocean to the top, the surface, which is at this point crawling with great white sharks. Um, I, this movie is not probably 
like good, um, but it is extremely effective. Uh, and I, you know what? Sometimes I just like watching a good giant shark movie. I watched The Meg, which was a worse a worse movie than this one actually, um, but had that giant shark factor. And which leads me to, uh, you know, my intro point is that I really love a good creature feature. And what I mean by that is a movie, usually a thriller, sometimes a horror movie, where the antagonist is a big effing monster. This could be a giant shark. This could be a giant snake. This could be Godzilla. Um, This is any kind of overgrown uh, overgrown and man, frequently man hungry or dangerous to man, um, monster. I'm very much looking forward to seeing Crawl, which is a giant alligator movie. Crocodile? Maybe crocodiles. They're in Florida. There's a hurricane. Uh, the main characters are trapped in a flooded house, which now also has, is crawling, haha, <laughs> crawling with, it's gotta be crocodiles. Well, anyway, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, And then they have to figure out how to get out of the house. Um, These are some of my favorite horror and thriller movies because the antagonist uh, can be defeated, which frequently in like supernatural thrillers, they can't. Um, Or, you know, I can kill a Maybe I can kill a shark conceivably. I would have a much harder time killing a ghost. Uh, But one of the things that a good creature feature does is taps into that kind of primal fear that humans still have about being eaten by uh, predatory creatures, like being in a situation where even though we are smart and capable and have opposable thumbs, uh, the thing lurking in the shadows or under the water um, doesn't care and has really big teeth and can still chomp us into bits. And one of the things that 47 meters down does really effectively is uh, basically runs a pipeline directly into that part of your brain. The shots of the great whites are used pretty sparingly, but when they are there, I made audible like sounds of terror. Um, They are not quite jump scares, but they did make me jump. Um, The other thing that a, underwater creature feature does or should do is uh, play, or at least for me, this might be just me, but um, I felt a very oppressive sense of panic during the scenes where Mandy Moore looks out into the ocean and all she can see is blue. Um, It's a bit like looking down a dark hallway and all you can see is shadow, like that, that sense of not knowing whether the the creature is right below you or right above you or just about to come out of complete nowhere. Um, Very effective. Highly recommend. I think the creature feature gets uh, parodied a lot. Um, I think it gets too often maligned by people who think that it's like a throwaway genre. And I think that's just because it's really easy to do poorly. Um, If your effects are not great or not being utilized effectively, it's really easy for your creature to end up looking cheesy. And then it's like, well, if the audience isn't afraid of your monster, um, then the movie itself is not going to be effective. Um, But 
there's no end to that sentence. Um, <laughs> like any other genre, there's good and there's bad, um, obviously. But I do think that for creature features, even the bad ones can be a good, cheesy fun. Um, and I would certainly recommend stuff like Anaconda or The Meg or Lake Placid. Like Even those are not really movies that I would call good or quality, but definitely have like a sense of fun um kind of fun scared like just fun imagining what it would be like to or not even fun imagining but I have lost my thread I thought briefly about pausing and starting this recording over but I think the beginning is uh worth listening to so um, listeners, enjoy my uh, rambling thoughts and check out 47 Meters Down on Netflix. Um, it's like an hour and a half and highly worth your time. All right. The next piece of media I'm going to talk about is the new Chance the Rapper album, The Big Day. Uh, this came out ju- uh, Friday, July 26th, um, just last Friday, if you're listening to this most recently, and it's being billed as Chance's first album. Uh, I thought he had a number of albums out already, you ask yourself if you're a Chance the Rapper fan, and the response is, yes, but those were mixtapes because he wasn't selling them. Uh, this is the first piece of media that he's selling, and it's the first one that he's considering an actual album rather than a mixtape. So how... What's the story with The Big Day? How does it fare compared to his other works? Um, This is a much more contemplative chance. Uh, It's all about... uh, The Big Day refers to his wedding, and there's lots of singing and discussion about him being married, his uh, wedding, which took place a couple months ago, to his uh, fiancée, long-time, on-again, off-again partner. Um, And it it feels like he's getting older he has a line of um i i hit the 27 club now i want to hit the 2070 club um 27 club being the the club of the uh, musicians who died at 27 um i think it's the the first half of this album is very good uh coloring book which was his previous mixtape came out in 20 boys 15 16 um 17 time has no meaning anymore um, Coloring Book was joyous, bombastic, gospel, hip-hop combined with indie music. This one pulls back on that gospel a little bit. It's a little more um, indie and rap-oriented, I would argue, hip-hop-oriented maybe, um, rather than gospel. He's still talking a lot about God, but not bringing in those choirs quite as often. Um, as to be expected with Chance, he does have a large jazz influence, thanks a lot to uh, folks like Peter Cottontail and Nico Siegel, uh, longtime collaborators with him, um, who are doing a really great job. Um, for me, standout track is probably the second track, Do You Remember?, which features Ben Gibbard uh, of Death Cab for Cutie, and it sounds a lot like a Death Cab for Cutie. It's a, a mournful, elegiac song about uh, basically the passage of time, how things in the past used to feel... Uh, different than they do now, time speeding up, that sort of thing. Um, in addition, gotta shout out the fact that my uh, youngest brother, Knox Fortune, is on Let's Go on the Run, which he also produced, and that's a fun, uh, up-bopper kind of song. Um, feels like it came off a coloring book. 
Biggest downsides with this album, I Coloring Book is definitely better. Uh, this album is 22 songs, and it is an hour and 17 minutes, and that is just way too much. The second half of the album, I find myself losing interest in, even as the songs are individually good. But by the time I get to song, you know, like 15, 16, it's, it's starting to fade. Um, if he had tightened this down to, to 40, 50 minutes, I think it would have been much more powerful and much more coherent. Um, in addition, there's a couple skits throughout this, uh, mostly, you know, sort of about the, uh, the wedding in one way or another. I'm not the biggest fan of skits and sketches on albums. Uh, these are mostly good. Um, the sketch four quarters in the back, I think is like downright hilarious, but even then it's like, I don't need a sketch in the middle of my album. I just want to be listening to the music. Um, this is like an on ongoing, I know many people do like sketches, especially well done ones, and this is a bunch of well done ones. So if it's a thing that's that you like, you'll probably like these. Um, personally, it doesn't do it for me. Um, yeah, so I, it's, there's a lot of good songs on here. I think, however, there's just a little too much chaff on here as well as all the wheat. And overall, clocking in at an hour 17 means that you're really gonna the air is gonna come out by the by the time you reach the end so um i'd say definitely go take a listen to it especially on streaming the first 10 15 songs are mostly really solid um i mean again they're all mostly solid songs some of them are great some of them are fine um none of them i think are, are straight up bad but take a look you know the, the first 10 12 songs you're gonna have a really good time listening to uh and if you don't end up finishing it i don't think that's the end of the world um, that as is usual with Chance and a lot of these uh, Chicago hip-hop artists, huge number of collaborators on this album. He's got, uh, you know, once again, uh, Francis of Francis and the Lights is on here. He's got Ben Gibbard. Nicki Minaj shows up on two of the songs. Uh, Megan Thee Stallion is on here. Randy Newman does a, a piano bit uh, on one of the songs. So uh, every song is packed to the gills with various collaborators, um, either in production roles or as musicians on, like featured musicians on it. And unfortunately, Spotify, for whatever reason, isn't showing any of that information. So I, you know, give the artists their due. Go check out Genius or wherever else you're going to get this information about who's on each song. Um, a, you'll find out the lyrics, which generally are great. Uh, Chances continues to be a good lyricist and good rapper. Um, and B, you'll actually get to like know who's on these albums and, and give them the credit that they're due. And that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Did You Do Your Homework Podcast. And you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, you're already listening to this, so you know that you can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere else that fine uh, podcasts are found. Please rate and review us, like us, tell your friends about us. Uh, that's how we get known by more people, those, uh, you know, social media algorithms on Apple Podcasts and uh, Spotify and all that good stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking about politics and pop culture. You can find Martha on Twitter, Instagram, and throughout the internet at MagicalMartha. Uh, she also has a tiny letter that you can subscribe to. I assume that is also at MagicalMartha. Finally, 
Uh, as you know, if you're subscribed to this podcast, we have another show out. That is with Martha and friend of the show, Marin Hagman, uh, where they are talking about Netflix young adult movies. That show is called Love Ya, and it comes out on the Wednesdays opposite of Did You Do Your Homework? Um, so if that is something up your alley, uh, you're probably already getting it in your feed because you're subscribed to this. But if you're not subscribed and it's up your alley, go ahead and subscribe and you can get it for free, just like you're getting this podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you in two weeks. Class dismissed.